We know when the general election will be, but we don't know yet what will be in the manifestos for agriculture. This week on the programme, we examine the NFU's manifesto for all political parties. Clearly, we need a trade agreement you know, that will work for British farming. That's a trade agreement with the EU, because we obviously export to the EU, but we also export to other countries outside the EU. Plus, as more farmers use drones on the land, are they being used properly? I think there's definitely room for improvement. Uh, I mean, some guys are really uh, very progressive in this area, and this is the, the kind of the beauty of these drones. Even if you're a livestock farmer, you can still send them up, take a snapshot, come back, and count how many sheep you have there. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Hello. Last Wednesday, Theresa May went to Buckingham Palace and Parliament was officially dissolved, launching the official start of the general election campaign. Although it does feel like it's been going for quite a few weeks now. This week, the major parties will be unveiling their manifestos, outlining why you should vote for them come June the 8th. But what should be in those manifestos for farming? The National Farmers Union has launched its own manifesto, setting out what it would like to see the next government, whoever it may be, focuses on as far as agriculture is concerned. Gordon Corner is from the NFU and has been speaking with Kelly Pyart. Well, clearly what the NFU have produced is a manifesto which has five ingredients for success. Um, The first one is making Brexit a success for farmers. So in answer to your question, clearly we need a trade agreement that will work for British farming. That's a trade agreement with the EU, because we obviously export to the EU, but we also export to other countries outside the EU. And that, you know, we need to make sure that the standards we we have when exporting our good food, and when we accept imports coming in, are as good as what, we, what you, the, the British people, want to eat. Absolutely. And I know another topic in there which is, a big concern is the loss of EU workers and guaranteeing their rights here. What is it that farmers are calling for there? Well, what we need is a, a, a scheme, you know, of continued access to non-UK seasonal workers, and also to non-non-non-seasonal you know, workers. So there's, there's a lot of workers are here, are here, you know, 365 days a year, um, you know, and they've settled here. They've have houses, children go to school here. Um, so we need to make sure that continual supply of labour. And anyways, that, that's right across you know, throughout the country, I think, in the sort of catering industry, you know, hospitals and things that, you know, they all require exactly the same as what agriculture does. Um, also, with regard to Brexit, I can see you mentioned about domestic agriculture policy um, and making sure that it, it yields enough. Can you just talk to me about that quickly? Yeah, the domestic agriculture policy, which we produced um, a couple of weeks ago, um, <clears throat> has three cornerstones. It has um, productivity, so the productivity is that mechanisation that we were talking about, um, and, and you know, better research into into different strains of crops, you know, whether it be wheat or, or others. Um, the next bit is is sustainability or, or stability, in the sense of because because. Farm prices go up and down, up and down. You know, if you're running a business, it's quite hard to work out what you want to invest when you're seesawing and the costs that are going, you know, that you get for your product that's going out of the um, farm gate. And the third one is is environment. Um, farmers are passionate about the environment, and the current schemes we've got from the EU are very complicated. And we we think that you know, there needs to be an incentive and attractiveness of making them fairly simple. And so you know, all farmers can and can benefit, and the, and the landscape, and and we all can benefit from from farmers doing you know, a good job with the environment. 
And I know that talks about investment. I know you're also calling for the government to make sure there's more planning with regards to farming and the sector. Um, what is it, do you feel, that's kind of being neglected by now, if you know what I mean? The planning piece, I think, you know, what, what we do want is, is you know, a proper digital um, service in the countryside. I mean, we, we, you, we, we read the... The HMIC are, are going to digitise tax returns, and and currently at the moment, you know, the farmers apply for for the EU payments you know, online. But if you haven't got a decent broadband service, and the rural you know, broadband service is poor in a lot of areas, then that doesn't help your productivity uh, moving forward. And also, I noticed here in the manifesto, it says there's been a two-year delay on farming and planning for its future being a priority for the next government. Um. How do you feel that the government has treated farming with regards to its, you know, the Department of Food and Rural Affairs? Do you think it has been a priority for them? Well, we expected this 25-year plan for food and farming to come out two years ago, um, and then we expected it would come out in February, and we actually thought the Secretary of State might talk about it when she addressed the NFU conference in February, um, but nothing. And, of course, now the election has been called, it's been delayed. But we do need that. Because people then understand, you know, what the plan is for the next 25 years and they can make the subsequent investment in their businesses to make that happen. And I guess particularly now with Brexit, there's so much more uncertainty for those markets. Yes, there is. Um, when we talk about Brexit, though, I think that it's quite easy to forget, and I think we're all forgetting it, actually, that that more comes into this country than goes out. And from a, sense, from a farming sense, from an EU perspective, uh, there was a report by... Yeah, a think tank called Farm Europe last week, which said in excess of 20 billion euros you know, comes this way than goes the other way. So, of course, you know, these trade deals are very important you know, for the farmers in Europe. So if you're selling wine to us from France, um, um, pork from Denmark, you know, bacon from Denmark, um, and then, you, then you, you, know, you get outside farming and, of course, you get German cars. So although there's a lot of noise coming around the moment i think i personally think that brexit will be sorted out by your know, economics gordon corner from the nfu speaking down the line there to kelly pyatt apologies the quality wasn't quite top notch but still an important message nonetheless and we'll watch with interest just what is in those manifestos once they're published the CLA, for its part, has set out its own rural priorities for the general election. It says delivering a Brexit that works for the countryside is crucial. Also, creating the homes that rural areas need, as well as implementing a simpler, more cost-effective planning system that encourages investment, ends the rural digital divide and applies a tax regime which encourages, rather than discriminates against rural business, are crucial to help shape the future of the rural economy. We'll hopefully be hearing from the Country Landowners Association on the programme in the next week or two. And nearer to June the 8th, we'll hopefully also be hearing from the main parties as well with their election pledges for agriculture. Back to this week and actually back to the recent event at the National Space Centre, which we featured on last week's programme. It was focusing on robotics and new technology aimed at helping agriculture. Well, of course, drones is being seen ever more on our farms, but are they of real benefit? Andrew Ward chatted with James Marshall Roberts of Syngenta and started looking at their affordability. I mean, you can buy a drone incredibly cheaply. Um, you know, you, from £60 upwards you can buy a drone, but really you need to be investing a little bit more to be able to get a drone which is useful on farm. Yeah. You want a, a reasonable camera on there so you yeah. can actually see what's happening and get a higher resolution image of the, uh, of the field. Mm-hmm. 
and also really get one which is GPS enabled. So yeah. things like the DJI Phantoms, those drones, uh, the Phantom 3, 4, they're all um, very stable. Yeah, if you have a, a very low-end cheap drone, you're more likely to lose it into a tree. So I would right. say invest a little bit more. Mm. Spend 500 plus pounds on a on a drone, yeah. and the, the little Phantom Threes are a great starting point for that. And what about range of these drones from your control where you're stored? How far can they go? So I mean, within the legislation, you've got to keep them within 500 meters of where you are. Um, oh anyway, right, as part of the legislation. So you need to be bearing that in mind. And, yeah, you know, keeping um, in line with all the CAA legislation as part of the air navigation order. But, you know, when you go and stand in the middle of a field, you've got quite a lot of range either side mm, of you. Mm, yeah. So you can actually start mapping these fields, especially when you start using the automated systems that mm. you can use. You see, you, you mentioned about civil aviation things. I, I farm very near RF Cranwell, right, mm. so which I can see their control tower from the farm. So what is the range? How near would I be able to go? Or what would be my, my sort of boundaries and limits around there? So it, really, the best thing is to go on... Um, it's like the, the, Download an app on your phone called Nats. Mm, yeah. So it's part of the drone safe um, from the CAA, and it starts alerting you about the airspace you're operating in and what kind of levels of aircraft there are. Now, there aren't many legal requirements about where you can and can't fly. You, you shouldn't be flying near the, or around the perimeter of an airbase, mm. uh, but it's good courtesy to get in touch with the control tower if you're yeah. near a, a local RAF base and say, I'll be operating a drone, um, just because it does start flying up in their radar yeah, systems. Yeah. They might just pop out and say right. hello. And just sort of going on to the use of them, obviously I know farmers that have got them now. Uh, do you think farmers are using them as effectively as they could, or do you think they're just using them to take snapshots, put on Twitter and, and have a bit of a play with? I think there's definitely room for improvement. Uh, I mean, some guys are really uh, very progressive in this area and uh, yeah, really utilising these you know, to the full, you know, kind of automation of the, the drones, stitching them all together and being able to really visualise mm-hmm. what's happening in the field. Yeah. Uh, other guys have got them to go around to have a look and um, just look for general variation. But this is the, the kind of the beauty of these drones. Even if you're a livestock farmer, you can still send them up, take a snapshot, come back and count how many sheep you have there. Mm. You know, from that very basic level yeah. to a fully automated drone flying off and giving you plant health scores mm. across the field. And obviously, uh, years ago, uh, a long while ago, spraying by the air, so aerial spraying with the old fixed wing yeah. planes was banned years ago. Can we at the minute, if not, how long will it be before we can uh, patch spray with a drone? Do you think that that's coming? It's an interesting one. Uh, there are a few people looking at this at the moment. Uh, one of the big limitations is the Sustainable Use Directive. So right. that currently prohibits um, the aerial application of which a drone is classed as a UAV, mm. uh, aerial vehicle. So therefore, you know, as part of the Sustainable Use Directive, that's prohibited, apart from some very kind of niche uh, products for bracken control. And uh, it's all about where you can't access with traditional equipment. You can then apply by air. So in the moors, for instance. I'm not sure how quickly it's going to happen. I think it needs to be uh, looking at the legislation and the classification of these uh, these drones. Mm. Uh, the the directive was set up aimed at um, planes and helicopters yes. uh, we're talking about a very different level of um, kind of height and speed and control and the accuracy of course they were very you know hugely inaccurate whereas now with with gps and rtk that we've all got we can apply things much more accurately so it, you know i think with the way we're going with with, uh, with herbicides and potential uh, loss of some of the actives if we could apply some of these uh, these chemicals but from the air, you know, but obviously at low down to the crop, mm. uh, that would be a lot more user-friendly than what a lot of people realise. Yeah, one of the challenges here with the industry needing to prove that the, the droplets coming from the, the drone are landing yes. where they should be. Um, and yeah, as an industry, 
uh, yeah, one of my bugbears is um, around uh, spray drift from agricultural sprayers, yeah. and uh, very keen to see that uh, improved upon across the mm. industry. And yeah, from the drones especially, as you do have the downfalls from the from the props. Mm. Uh, if you're using a, a quadcopter type drone yeah. or, uh, or even more kind of rotors than that, then that can create a significant downwash. So it's mm. making sure that if there are droplets being released from beneath that drone, they're landing where they are, and I think that's one of the factors that will need to be addressed. Yeah, for this to be uh, mm. become a, a reality. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned as well uh, tonight in your talk that uh, you, you thought that it was some of the uh, and the drones are, are very uh, poor or, or it's difficult to to actually uh, differentiate some weeds from actual plants that they want to keep yeah, do you think that will improve and, and when will that happen I think it will massively improve. I think um, if we talk about some of the talks we've heard about tonight about robotics and yeah. future efficiency as well, the ability to process imagery is just you know, going from strength to strength. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that I can now automate a drone from my smartphone and you know, then go and uh, you know, go really? the field and you know, yeah. all that work can be done so easily. Yeah. So I, I don't believe it will be too long at all. We can already do it at certain stages. So. Yeah. As I mentioned, you know, when the black grass is in head, it's very easy to actually see that yeah. with, a, with a RGB image from a mm. standard drone. Um, we don't need to be spending lots of money on the big multispectral ones. No. Um, they can get into a lot more detail and they can mm. be very accurate mm. and detect it at different stages. But from the very basic point of view, the RGB camera mm. is a really useful tool. And you mentioned as well in the talk about, about this plant count uh, job that you did, uh, 13 hours. I mean, you know, manually compared mm. to with a drone. Just go through that one. Yeah, and this is this for me is a really interesting area about looking at efficiency and uh, and understanding what's happening in the fields. Now, whether it's on a trial um, that, that I'm carrying out or if it's in a field, being able to understand what's happening and the variation in your field is really important. Now, in this example, we spent 13 hours, you know, really highly accurate, uh, you know, test of a field going through going through doing plant counts or geo-reference locations. Yeah. Now, that's a lot of data, but then a 10.5-minute flight from the drone gave us a very high accuracy of a plant count as well. So that, for me, is a really kind of opening technology, and um, it will continue to improve all the time, especially as the automation systems are now allowing us to slow the drones down quite a bit. So, yeah, we can now change batteries halfway through a flight and send the drone back to where it started from, and it will mm, continue amazing. again. And, you know, very high-resolution imagery, so we can individually spot plants and count them and record them across a row. And, and as well, I know a friend who's got one of the one of these phantoms, and, and if it gets a bit windy or, or you know going too far, he just presses a button and it returns to where exa- exactly where it took off from. Yeah, you know, uh, and it's, they're, they're incredible you know, yeah. bits of kit, and I mean they're great fun. Yeah, they need to be used with uh, with respect, and you know, mm. um, I mean, need to be within the law as well with it. But mm. they. Uh, they can be very useful as well as a lot of fun and the ability of them to actually as you say you know, return to home if they lose signal they should come back and automatically land yeah. and as part of the, the civil aviation authority test you literally have to turn the controller off and it's quite an unnerving thing to do yeah. to turn off the controller for a drone uh, but absolutely it comes back and uh, it'll come and, and that's one of the regulations it has to do that yes yeah, part of the test you have yeah. to be able to um, show that your, yeah. um, your uav is able to return to home so when we've gone uh, looking at years ago plowing with a horse to now looking at drones and crop monitoring the, the distance we've come in at, in farming is phenomenal isn't it absolutely and what I'd love to know is where we're going to be in 10 20 yeah, years time yeah, um, yeah and, and yeah the capability of image analysis that the military have at the moment um, yeah what will come available to us in 10 years time yeah. will be very interesting yeah, to see yeah, yeah. well indeed I wonder what farming will look like in a decade's time I also wonder who'll be here telling you about it uh, that was James Marshall Roberts of Sagenta speaking there with Andrew Ward
I'm Sean Dunderdale with your week in agriculture and uh, I feel a bit like a teacher actually now checking the weekly homework as we uh, focus on our regular reports. Uh, we start with grain and it's Henry Young from Open Field this week. What can be said about the markets this week? Well, it's basically me driven by that weather. Snow, rain, dry weather all across the world. Let's have a look at kind of the local news first. Um, looking at the old crop, the May 17 futures, there's still an awful lot of open lots of it there. So it could get very interesting with only 14 trading days left. Last week, we saw a number of new tenders coming to the market and also some retenders. The important thing to note at the moment is there are some imports coming in from France. At the moment, we're seeing two vessels loaded. One of them is destined for Manchester. The other one is unknown. But new crop is largely unchanged with the rain forecast on the continent missing the UK. I know a a lot of disappointed farmers were missing that rain. Uh, But also the new crop, Matif, has dropped a bit lower with that rain that they've had over there. So just earlier on, as I said about the weather, the US outlook is a little unchanged. There have been some very horrible uh, snowstorms over there that have put wheat down on the ground. Uh, I have seen photos this week of, of some crops very, very flat. Some uh, have, have snapped, brackled over. So time will tell on this, but it will be two, or four, two to four weeks before there's some real signs of this. So what has this meant for the market? Um, It has meant that there's been a turn in the uh, hard red spring futures and again in the hard red winter futures. Whilst in Kansas, the wheat tour is still progressing. But people have said, even though it's progressing, what can they observe? They're a bit dubious about what results are coming out because of the snow cover. The trade is also looking into more detail about the combination of the hard red softs and hard red winters, uh, S&D, in a gauge uh, to kind of work out what quality there's going to be out there down the road. Potentially... Uh, within Canada, uh, they've got off to a bad start. Slow slow drilling. But something to be interested about over there is some universities have come out and said that they are reporting wheat uh, streak mosaic virus moving eastwards into Kansas. The disease can cause huge losses. So just to round that up, it's all about the weather. In the US, they've got the snow, they've got the rain. Here, we've got the, such, such dry weather. And also in the Black Sea, they're seeing some dry weather as well. So not all about the quality but we'll also see what the quantity is going to be like. In particular, only certain conclusion can be seen as the farmers really aren't selling very much at the moment because they won that rain. So having a look at those prices, June 146 to 147, harvest 129 to 134, November 133 to 136, May 18, 139 to 142. There is some carry there in the market, worth having a bit of a think about. The oilseed rate market, it is very quiet at the moment. There has been limited interest. It's been it's only moving around, should we say, three euros, and that's all it's moved in the last 18 sessions. At the moment, we do know that there are imports being unloaded within the UK. That is going to have an impact. But when that's finished, who knows what uh, if they'll be back in the market buying a bit more. Having a look at those prices, June 329, harvest 296, November 306, May bit of a drop off 304 but that's because people are trying to work out quite what the market's going to do further forward having a look at the malting barley market well they're lacking uh, lacking kind of any real interest at the moment from both the growers and the consumers drilling is now complete within the uk we're seeing quite a few of those uh, spring barley crops up around the county also it's well well on a way in some places of scandinavia but there's only a little bit uh, left to plant over there they are coming through so Again, wait and see. If you think the price is right, start putting those uh, marks down and go from there. The prices at the moment, this is for feed barley, by the way. June, 118 to 122. Harvest, 108 to 109. 
November 17, 113 to 115. May 18, 119. Beans. The feed beans uh, continue to be firm with the market feeling tight. With little coming forward, really, a lot is being cleared out. Farmers are starting to clear bits and pieces out of the back of the sheds now. Human consumption remains next to nothing. Uh, And even if there is real any export demand, the the premiums aren't really there at the moment. Old crop feed uh, feed is currently worth 165 to 170 x farm. New crop is trading on limited demand at the moment. Uh, New is basically worth 153 to 155 x. Thank you, Henry Young, Open Field. We discussed drones earlier in the programme, and uh, I know our agronomist Sean Sparling makes use of a drone himself. That's right, isn't it, Sean? Yes, morning, Sean. I do, actually. I have two drones. Um, But I agree with what was said, and I think it's an inevitability that we're all going to have to be licensed. We're all going to have to go through all the licensing courses in the coming years because there are getting to be so many of them now. In the short term, follow the guidelines, make sure you're safe, make sure you understand what you're doing, go online and look at the no-fly zones, know where you can fly, where you can't fly and unless you're qualified to use it don't fly it around people Um, i use mine just for looking into crops where i can't get to or taking a bit of a view of a farm so that when i go walking i can walk to these areas which i can see from the drone which i would otherwise have to happen upon so very very useful tools but let's start with the weather because it's quite uh, topical as far as drones go with the wind this week i haven't been able to fly it anyway and when you get these high winds 25 30 miles an hour with days around 15 degrees the evaporation from the crop is very obvious to see and we're already in what is clearly a, a dry spring uh, a very dry spring i mean i finished uh, april with 18 mil of rain there were people less than five miles away from me who finished on eight mil of rain so it is very very dry however Crops, once they're up and running, they seem to be continuing to do so. And that's because, as we said last week, you've put them into moisture two or three inches down. Once they get a root hold, they'll seek out that moisture. Where the weeds are is in that top inch band, which is why they're struggling to get going. Most fields are pretty clean at the moment, um, even sugar beet. But if you look at the black grass, that rain last week was enough to trigger it to grow in some of these spring barleys. Now, there's nothing you can do about it. Hopefully, the pre-emergence will start to pick it up. And you can see that in the field. It's picking up flufenacet and uh, prosulfocarb and DFF. You can see the effects on the black grass. So hopefully, that spring barley will keep moving now it's got started and start to crowd it out. Because things like pinoxidin are no good whatsoever on black grass. So don't waste your money on them. They're very good on wild oats and ryegrass, but they're no good on black grass. And that's not what they're intended for. Um, so in general spring barley varies from two leaves right up to growth stage 30 and up on the wolds and on the heath where you get these brushy shallow soils it hasn't been a wet spring as we know but it's been wet enough so that these crops haven't had to look for moisture and that's becoming apparent in some of the forward pieces at growth stage 30 which are really starting to shut down the older leaves now and concentrate their efforts on the new growth and that's a stress reaction Um, you get this black speckling abiotic spotting within the leaves and that is a stress reaction to the drought the only thing that's going to solve that is a bit of water a bit of rain whether you can irrigate or a drop of rain and the thing not to do is just pile on every little remedy that you can think of and keep spending money throwing it at it you need to be back to basics monitor the crop Watch the problem and be very careful with everything you do because, as I've said before, the stress on these crops is the thing that's going to make the propensity for damage much, much greater. So as you go throwing on a fungicide mixed with herbicides in it, the wetters, the surfactants on that, coupled with the stress 
and the dehydrated nature of these crops, you could well be looking at some significant crop damage if you get it wrong. Um, also, liquid fertiliser, you can see that scorching all over the place. The people who are using urea are struggling a little bit because it doesn't soak down, it evaporates and volatilises. And we're starting to see a little bit of nitrogen deficiency showing up in the field. So it's a difficult spring all round, but we can manage it but you don't have to spend a fortune to manage it. Just monitor it and you may well find you get the problem solved that way. Um, also, when you move on to sugar beet, the weed control is proving a challenge. Um, herbicides are working well where they've gone on, but again, some of these crops are very small, very backward. They're very stressy, so just watch the mixes you're putting on and watch the time of day and the amount of additional adjuvant you're including in those mixes and, and prioritise the most robbing and pernicious weeds within the fields. Um, winter wheat, growth stage 31, mine's been on for around 10 days now, very happy I did that. Um, and remember, this is perfect weather for the spread of septoria. You don't need wet weather. The heavy dews are enough. It's perfect weather for the spread of yellow rust. The heavy dews are enough. And it's perfect weather for brown rust now, because as it comes hotter and drier, um, we start to move into brown rust territory. So don't skimp on your T1 or your T2. Maintain doses. Don't think you can cut back on the triazole because it's dry and the septoria threat has diminished. It hasn't diminished. You need to maintain a good dose, 80% plus at both T1 and T2. And talking about T2, I did find some wheat the other day where the flag leaf is just pricking out. Now that could be a stress reaction, but I think it just shows that uh, you can't just look at the calendar and do this job. Things move very quickly. Winter barley, the awns are poking out now, so if you were thinking of putting ethophon on, you're probably too late for that. Modus as well, Trinexpac ethyl, you're too late for those. Um, so as the awns come out, you start to consider your flag leaf fungicide. And remember that the awns are an integral part of the photosynthetic um, system. So you need to make sure they remain clean, as well as the flag leaf and the top of the plant in barley. Um, linseed flea beetle starting to hit that. Pea and bean weevil still active out there. And on backward crops, which are slow growing, which they're going to be for a, a week or two yet, I'm afraid, with this lack of water. For goodness sake, monitor them. If you need to go, go. But don't just spray insecticides for the sake of doing it, because that's what's going to make the problems worse in the years to come. Uh, because resistance was going to build very rapidly to all we've got left, which in essence is pyrethroids. Sean Sparling, Sparling Agronomy Services, as ever, keeping one eye on the weather. So uh, what is in store this week? The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. Well, today's mostly dry, patchy cloud, highs of 14 Celsius. The wind from the north at 15 miles an hour. Overnight tonight, staying cloudy. We're looking at lows of around 5 Celsius. That wind getting up a bit from the northwest, 10, gusting at 25 miles an hour. And then possibility of a shower or two first thing in the morning, but sunny spells come the afternoon. Highs of 13 Celsius. The wind from the northeast, 20 to 25 miles an hour. Could gust at 30 miles an hour for a time first thing in the morning. Monday night into Tuesday, clear skies that will push temperatures down 3 or 4 Celsius in places. The wind from the north, 6 to 8 miles an hour. And then some sunshine through Tuesday, cloud building with maybe a shower by the end of the day. 12 Celsius the high, the wind continuing from the north at about 5 to 6 miles an hour. Overnight, again, Tuesday into Wednesday, clear skies, temperatures down to around 3 Celsius, the wind more from the south southwest, again 6 to 10 miles an hour. And then again, sunny spells to start Wednesday, the possibility of maybe a shower, a little bit of cloud in the afternoon, a bit warmer, 15 Celsius, the high for the middle of the week, the wind from the west southwest, staying at around 6 or 7 miles an hour. Then the latter end of the week, well, it will be warmer. There is the possibility at the moment, forecast, of some particularly heavy rain first thing on Friday. 16 Celsius could be the high, though. 
overnight lows of 10 Celsius, and that wind more from the east-southeast, gusting around 20 miles an hour. That can change. We'll keep you updated, of course, with our hourly forecasts. For now, though, that is the forecast. Next week, we uh, start the agricultural show season once again. It comes around so quick, doesn't it? It's the uh, Nottinghamshire County Show next week. Also, the South Suffolk Show as well next Sunday. The uh, first of many happening right across the country. So uh, we'll look at just how important they are to the industry, whether networking or maybe doing more serious business. That's next week. Until then, as ever, have a good week's farming.